At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Now, if you would this morning, please turn in your Bibles to the Word of God and chapter number one of the book of 2 Peter. It's toward the end of your Bible. 2 Peter chapter number one. You know, our culture has calibrated into us a need for something more. It's always being you know, pronounced and driven our way. You need something more. You need a newer phone. You need a bigger house. You need a larger salary. You need fancier clothes. You need a shorter work week. You need longer vacations. You need a sleeker body. You need clearer skin. You need a hotter date or mate. You need a faster car. You need a, a better gaming console. And with this coming at us all the time, calibrating us towards you need something more, you need something more, our mentality becomes, I cannot really live, you know, until I get whatever that may be, that's something more. And then our countenance gets down, and we find ourselves drifting along, waiting until whatever fills in the blank would come in our life. And that same mentality can seep into the church of Jesus Christ. That same mentality can seep into the heart of one following Christ. Where we just say we need something more. I need something more in the spiritual realm. And until that comes in my life, I can't really live a godly life. We oftentimes feel like a spiritual have-not. We're thinking, you know what? I need more spiritual power than I have. I look around and other people seem to be having greater spiritual experiences than I am. And then I got some people running around and they're telling me that I need to experience a second blessing of the Holy Spirit in my life and then, you know, I can really live a godly life. Others around us are claiming to experience miracles in their life every single day, and we think, I'm not. So what starts to happen to us is we begin to feel like we are spiritually inferior, like we're some sort of second-class Christian. And that mentality begins to overtake us that says, I can't really effectively live a spiritual life until, you know, fill in the blank, whatever it may be. I can't really get there. And so our countenance is down, and we drift along spiritually waiting until whatever, something more comes in our life. And when that happens in the life of a believer of Jesus Christ, I want you to know that our spiritual adversary smiles. He is highly pleased when we drift into a mentality that I am spiritually inferior or I am spiritually impoverished. And what we're going to learn from the Apostle Peter today is that at the point of salvation, the point that we trusted in Christ, God provided all that we need to grow in godliness. I remember when I first began to hear about that truth. 
when I, I learned that Lewis Berry Chafer, who was the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, and he wrote a systematic theology, and part of his systematic theology was, he said, there were 33 riches of divine grace that every believer received at the moment they trusted in Christ for salvation. And I'm like, what? 33 riches of divine grace? That was so exciting to me. And it made such a difference in my life. Now, the title I've given to today's message is this, something more, question mark, question mark. And we're actually going to be launching into a series that will have four messages in it from 2 Peter chapter 1. And as we get started, I want to read from 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read the first four verses. I invite you to follow along in your Bible as I'm reading. Verse 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, today's plan involves doing three different things. Number one, we're going to look at the background of this letter. We're just sort of jumping into it. We want to get a feel for the background. And then we're going to look at the outline of not just chapter 1, but actually all three chapters of Second Peter. And then the third thing we're going to look today is to look at God's great provision for you and for me. So that's the plan. Sound like a good plan? All right. So let's begin by looking at the background. And of course, the background involves the person who is writing the letter, which is, as we learn from verse 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, what you may not know is that in church history, some have actually questioned whether or not Peter is the author of Second Peter. And a primary reason for that is that when you look at First Peter, the first letter, the Greek, which you wouldn't notice in your Bible, but the Greek and the original text in 1 Peter is more refined. It is smoother Greek than that of the Greek of 2 Peter. So in part because of that, some people say, well, it can't be the same author. You have a smoother, more refined language in the first letter. And this one, it's just not that way at all. It's just a little rougher, a little gruffer. But I think there's a reason for that. If you turn one page to your left in your Bible and come to 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 12, we learn here's how Peter closes out that first letter. He says, through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, then notice what he says, through Silvanus, I have written to you briefly. What does that mean? He's basically saying that as I'm writing you this first letter of 1 Peter, Silvanus is my secretary. He is my transcriber. 
In other words, Peter was communicating, these are the thoughts that I want to communicate, but it was Sylvanus who was actually writing them down. And he may well have smoothed out the rough, gruff fisherman's Greek so that it was just a little bit smoother without altering the spiritual content of it. So I, I think the evidence points to him being the author, truly, of Second Peter. And there are several things that, that show up in the, in, the, in the book. For example, look at chapter 1 and verse 15. You remember how in John chapter 21, verses 18 and 19, Jesus told Peter, he gave him a prediction about you're going to die and a little bit of how he was going to die. And you look here at verse 14, and the author who's claiming to be Simon Peter says, I know that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling, my earth tent, is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. An allusion back, I think, to John chapter 21. Certainly indicative of Peter's, it claims that he's the the author. And then look at at, uh, verses 17 and 18. He's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father. And he said, such an utterance as this was made to Jesus by the majestic glory of the Father. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And the author says, and we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, who was with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? You remember? Three people, Peter, James, and John. So we have clear indicators here because of life experiences and then what we learn from 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 12, that this indeed is the author. Peter is the author. Now, as we're talking about Peter, I think we all need to be a little bit reminded about Peter, okay? This is all part of the background. You know that Peter and his brother Andrew were in the professional fishing business, not just guys who would fish occasionally. They were professional fishermen. And we know that Peter became the vocal leader of the disciples, right? But Peter is kind of dear to us because he was a guy who was overtly self-confident. He had this tendency to make bold assertions. He had this tendency to make brash moves. And when he did that, he fell flat on his spiritual face. And that's one of the reasons why we kind of like the guy. We can identify with him. You know, you see an account of that in in Luke chapter 5. And I love this story because Peter and all of his crew had been out on the Sea of Galilee all night long. The professionals were out there all night long fishing, and they come back to the shore in the morning, and you know how many fish they caught? Absolutely zero. And then Jesus walks up, you know, the teacher and the trained carpenter, and he says, you know what I think you guys ought to do? I would go out to the deep part of the sea and cast your net out there. Now, I would have paid money to see Peter's face right at that very moment. You know, like, what does a carpenter know? And he says to him, you know, we worked hard all night out there fishing. But Jesus asked, so, you know, reluctantly, they row their way out. You know, I'm sure he was complaining under his breath. They cast their nets out there. Suddenly, they fill totally up. 
They begin to fill the boat, net after net after net. It gets so full, they got to bring another boat out there. They fill the second boat all the way up till it's almost sinking. That's just the way Peter was. See, another story with him in, in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 22. Remember, this is where Jesus said, I am going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer there. And what does Peter say? God forbid it, Lord, that you would go there. And Jesus has some words of rebuke for him. That's just Peter. It's our, our kind of guy. You see this in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and following, where Jesus warns Peter and he says to him, my friend, Satan is going to come after you and you are going to deny me three times. You remember what Peter said? Are you kidding me, Lord? I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. And then Jesus is arrested and he denies him three times, throwing in a bunch of swear words to make it more convincing that he never even met the man, Jesus. This is, this is Peter. He's just so much like we are. We see it in John chapter 18 and verse 10. When they come to arrest Jesus in the garden, you remember this? And what happens? Peter whips out his sword, and I think he wants to cut off the high priest slave's Malchus's head, but he sort of probably moved his head at the last minute, and whack, he whacks off the ear. I, I just know Jesus had to turn around and go, what are you doing, Peter? That's why we like the guy. Peter had spiritual warts and spiritual failures, and we've got them, and so we go, I, I can identify with a guy like that. I like the way Warren Wearsby summarizes it. He says, speaking of Peter, he had a tendency in his early years to feel overconfident when danger was near and to overlook the master's warnings. Oh, so true. He rushed ahead when he should have waited, he slept when he should have prayed. He talked when he should have listened. That's Peter. Yet, yet, Peter learned. Yet, Peter grew. He did not say the same. Say the same. Stay the same. What does he do? He becomes a key leader in the church as it's formed in the book of Acts. In fact, in Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 12, Peter is mentioned 52 times because he didn't stay where he was. He grew from that whole experience. Now, part of the background is he's coming to the end of his life. He's nearing the end of his life on earth. And if it helps you to just close your eyes for a moment, I just want you to, to read a great summary that Chuck Swindoll, he paints a very vivid picture of what was going on as he sits down to write this letter. Here's what Swindoll, he says, he says of Peter staring out of the second story window from his secret dwelling in Rome because he was writing from Rome. The gray-haired Simon Peter looked west across the Tiber River toward the distant hill of Mount Vaticanus. If he squinted, he could trace the outline of the arena of Caligula, where Nero had been making sport of Christians, torturing them, burning them, 
hanging them, crucifying them, even feeding them to wild animals. So far, the Lord had prevented Peter's capture, but he knew it was only a matter of time. Though he wasn't yet sure when, where, or how it would happen, the Lord had revealed to him that he would soon depart this life. At any moment, he would hear the door downstairs burst open, the clank of Roman armor, outbursts of coarse Latin slang, and the drawing of swords. Bound like a dangerous criminal, he would be dragged away for a sham trial and condemned to a torturous sentence that far outweighed his alleged crimes. Now, when you climb into all of that background, you know what my response is? I want to learn from this guy. I want to lean into what this guy is writing as his life is near the end. Now, verse 1, take a look at verse 1. He says there, I am writing to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. This is actually a pretty significant statement. I'm writing to those, to these believers and to you and to me, who have received a faith of the same kind, or as the ESV says, a faith of equal standing. And the word is iastamas, and it means something of the same kind or equal standing, obviously. It's an interesting word. It was used of an immigrant who would come into a, a foreign country and they would receive citizenship that was equivalent to a native inhabitant of the land. You know, the same kind, same equal standing of citizenship. And he's saying, I'm writing to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Who are the as ours? I think he's referring to himself as an apostle, which he cited earlier, and all the apostles. He's saying, you have received a faith that is of the same kind. It's of equal standing with ours who are the apostles. It's as legitimate and as valuable as us who are eyewitnesses of Jesus' glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. Translation, what is he saying? He's saying, listen, there are no second-class Christians. There's no spiritual haves and have-nots. You are not, Peter says, spiritually inferior in the least. You have received a faith of the same kind as ours. How was that obtained? How was that accomplished? By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's basically saying this. It was not my doing. It's not your doing. It's by his doing. That's how we got that faith from him. You can jot down 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 to 20 here, 21 here, where it talks about how God was in the process of reconciling us back into a relationship with himself. So we said we were going to do three basic things today. First of all, we were going to look at the background. Does that background give you a little better feel as you move into these verses? Second thing we want to do is we want to look at the outline of the book. 
Now, I just want you to know, in this series we're going to be doing this summer, we're only going to be covering chapter 1. And then, Lord willing, in the fall, we're going to cover chapter 2, and then a little later than that, we're going to cover chapter 3. But I want you to have a handle on the whole book, so we have an outline of the book for you here. And in chapter 1, we have cultivation of spiritual maturity. In chapter 2, we have caution about false teachers. In chapter 3, we have confidence in Jesus' return. In chapter 1, the emphasis is exhortation, exhortation to you and to me. In chapter 2, the emphasis is on denunciation, looking back at the false teachers. In chapter 3, the emphasis is on anticipation. The theme in chapter 1 is a theme of holiness. The theme in chapter 2 is a theme of heresy. The theme in chapter 3 is a theme of hope. And then we see that the focus of chapter 1 is ourselves. In chapter 2, it's on our adversaries. And in chapter 3, the focus is on our future. So that just gives you an outline, a little orientation on, on the book. In this series, we're going to focus on chapter number 1. Now, Three things we were going to do. We were going to look at the background. We've looked at the outline. Now we want to get to the third thing we want to examine, and that is God's great provision. Look look again at verses 2, 3, and 4. He says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, For by these he has granted to us precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now I want you, as you look at those verses, there are two key hooks, two key verbal forms I want you to notice. In verse 3, it says his divine power has granted to us something. And then in verse 4, it says, he has granted to us something very important. So you see that phrase, granted to us. Some translations say, given to us. If you underline in your Bible, you want to underline those phrases. Granted to us, verse 3. Granted to us, verse 4. And and the verb here, granted, is a, a verb that means to grant to give, to bestow, to endow with. It's not something that we earn. It's something that's bestowed upon us. It's it's granted to us. We are endowed with it. And these two verbs that are used, one in verse 3 of granting and verse 4 of granting, are in the original language what's called a perfect passive construction. Now, you go, Bruce, I don't know what that means. Well, let me just explain it for a moment. The passive means that the action of the verb is something that we receive. It's not something we do. It's something we receive. The perfect tense is very important in the original language because what the perfect tense describes is a past event that occurs, but the results and the ramifications of it carry on. 
It was granted to us, verse 3, it's a past event, the ramifications carry on. It was granted to us, verse 4, past event, but the ramifications carry on. The effects continue on. So let's look at verse 3. Seeing that his divine power, his divine power, he's talking here about the divine resource reservoir that exists. I don't know if you've seen any, any stories on Lake Mead um, where, you know, that's a huge, you know, huge dam, very important water supply. But if you look at that reservoir now, and I've seen some aerial photographs of it, it's, it's way down. It's shocking to see how far down that is, and it's alarming people who live there. But the divine resource reservoir isn't down in any way. I mean, let me ask you this question. How shallow do you think God's resource reservoir is? How shallow is it? Well, I mean, God can speak this universe into existence. Boom, there it is. We learn from Psalm 8, verse 3, that the moon, the stars, and the galaxies are just the finger work of God. Are you kidding me? He doesn't even have to use his arm to do all of that. When it's talking about his divine power, his divine resource reservoir, it is massively huge. And what does it say? His divine power, this divine resource reservoir, has granted to us something very important. Again, perfect tense, past event, ramifications carry on. And what is his divine resource reservoir granted to us? He says there in verse 3, everything pertaining to life and godliness. The ESV says, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Other translations say he has granted to us everything we need for life and godliness, everything required for life and godliness, everything necessary for life and godliness. Everything that is needed, required, and necessary for living a godly life, he has granted to us, past tense, the moment we trusted in Christ, ramifications carry on in our life. He has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godly. It's not for every task in life. You know, he doesn't give us at the point of salvation the ability to repair a car. I knew nothing about repairing cars until I had to slowly learn about it. It's not like, you know, he gives us the, the ability when we trust Christ to, to grow plants. Some of us can do it. Some of us can't. It doesn't mean he gives us the ability to, to put siding on a house, which my house desperately needs after the hailstorm. It doesn't mean he gives us the ability to do ear surgery. He's just simply saying this. Everything we need pertaining to life and godliness for living a godly life, we've got There's nothing we lack when it comes to becoming more godly. This, by the way, is a huge emphasis in in the scriptures. We see in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 where it says, He has blessed us, notice the past tense again, pointing back to the point of salvation, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Have you ever run around and had someone tell you, you know what you need is you really need the second blessing of the Holy Spirit. People say that to me, and I'm going like, what did you just say? What does this verse say? 
It says he has blessed us past tense with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You know, um, you see this in Colossians 2.10. In him, you have been made complete. By the way, this is another perfect construction. The ESV says you have been filled in him. Everything that you needed, everything you needed to be filled with, all that you needed completely to be able to operate as a believer has happened. And the ramifications continue on. So so what we're talking about is God's great provision and the first thing he's communicating to you and to me, and remember, this is when he's getting ready to check out. He wants to say the most important things he can say. And he's saying, you have been granted complete spiritual resources. Complete spiritual resources. I absolutely love Warren Wiersbe's analogy here. Here's what he says. He says, just as a normal baby is born with all the equipment he needs for life and only needs to grow, right? So the Christian has all that is needed and only needs to grow. God never has to call back any of his models because something spiritual is lacking. Men and women, what Peter is telling us is at the point of salvation, when we trusted in Christ, God granted past event, complete spiritual resources to us, and the ramifications of that continue on. He has given to us everything necessary for life and godliness. All that we need for living a godly life. Now, if he's given us everything necessary for life and godliness, I'll ask you a simple little question. What's left out of that? What do we lack? Nothing. You know, and we hear this, and sometimes it's easy to read through a verse like that, and we don't realize what's going on. Do you realize this is a drop-the-mic moment? Holy cow! He's saying, look, there are no spiritual have-nots. You have no need of something more. You don't need a second blessing. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. He's saying there's no second-class Christians. None of us are spiritually impoverished or spiritually inferior. We have no reason for our spiritual countenance to be down. We have no reason to wait until, you know, fill in the blank, whatever experience occurs. We have been granted everything necessary for life and godliness, complete spiritual resources. See, he did not redeem us and then just sort of leave us on our own. I hope you kind of figured this out. Didn't work that way. Now, how was how all of this accomplished? Well, look at verse 3. He did this, it says, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Again, we're in the midst of a culture that champions truth as relative. Now, now sometimes people don't fully get that. What relative truth means is that truth is determined by you and me. We all have our own ideas. And you have your truth, and I have my truth. And there's no ultimate source of truth. It's just whatever you think the truth ought to be. So you figure it out for you, and I figure it out for me. And we have 10,000, 10 million people, 20 million, 100 million100 billion, who knows how many people running around. Everybody's got their own truth. But see, that's not what Scripture teaches. It says that truth is found in a person. 
And eternal life is found in a person. John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. He is the source of truth and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's the words of Jesus. So when we're talking about God's great provision for us, the first thing we learn from verse three is he's given us, granted to us complete spiritual resources. There's a second thing that he's granted to us and that is precious and magnificent promises. Look at verse four. He says, for by these, what what, what does that refer to? It refers back to his glory and his excellence. By his glory and his excellence, here he comes again. He has granted to us that perfect past event with ramifications that carry on. He's granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. What are those? Well, how many days do you have? There are myriads of myriads of them. I want to just give you a small sampling of his precious and magnificent promises. One precious and magnificent promise is the promise of eternal life, John 3, 16 and 36. Another precious and magnificent promise is the promise of wisdom. Anybody need wisdom living in life? Yeah, we all need that. Ephesians 1, 17 and 18. Another precious and magnificent promise is the promise of the Holy Spirit who was sent as our helper, our enabler, the one who can teach us and transform us, Galatians chapter 5, verses 18 to 25. Another precious and magnificent promise is the promise of guidance. Anybody need guidance working our way through this world? Holy cow, we do. John 16, 13. Another precious and magnificent promise is the promise of a future inheritance, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4. Another precious and magnificent promise is the promise of Jesus' return. He's going to talk about that in 2 Peter 3, verse 4 and following. You ever wish God would just come back and clean this place up? Yeah. Another precious and magnificent promise is the promise of a new heavens and a new earth in 2 Peter 3, 13. I'm ready for it all to be cleaned up. It It just gets wearying living here. But see, these precious and magnificent promises, these are just a small sampling of them. He has given them to us. His great provision of these two things, complete spiritual resources and precious and magnificent promises. Now, what's the goal of receiving these things? Remember, we received them when we trusted in Christ, past event, but the ramifications continue on, why, why does he give these things to us? What's the goal? Well, it's right there in verse four. Notice he says, for he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that, here we go, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. In other words, the plan in receiving these things and being endowed with these things and being granted these things is that his spiritual life would be reproduced in us. That's the reason why he granted us his great provision of these two things. You you know, you see, Paul talking about this in Ephesians chapter three, verse 19. He says, the goal is that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. The idea is that we, we grow and develop and utilize 
this great provision, the resources and the, mat and the promises so that we grow in Christ and eventually what happens is that the life of Christ just oozes out of us. And think about Peter. Was he like that in his early years? No. But he grew and he developed. He realized the resources he had been granted. He realized the precious and magnificent promises that he had been granted. And as you get later on in his life, the life of Christ is just oozing out of him. And the practical result of all of this at the end of verse 4 is that we escape the corruption that is in the world by lust. The New Living Translation says the decadence of the world. Do you ever feel that way? I mean, this is a word that was used of something that was rotting. And sometimes we just see that, we get a glimpse of that in this world, and it just goes, oof. He's basically saying that the result of taking advantage of our complete spiritual resources and the precious and magnificent promises is that we will avoid the relational muck of the world. And there's a lot of that out there. Now, as we said, the message title is Something More? Question mark, question mark. Do we need something more? And just as a way to apply the principles we've seen today, I want to talk about, as followers of Christ, two life steps. I think we can take each one of us coming out of this message. And the first one is to deepen our awareness of God's great provision. And I have two tools that will help us in that regard. And I, I, I want us to, I, we're going to try to provide an opportunity for you to get your hands on these tools. The first tool is something I put together a few years ago called Who Am I Really? 40 Truths. And it starts out in this handout. It says, we are who God says we are. What God says about me right now, colon, and then it has in here, because of Jesus Christ, I am accepted. There's a number of verses. Because of Christ, I am secure, a number of verses. Because of Christ, I am significant in a number of verses. So that is one resource that you can get your hands on that will help to deepen our awareness of his provision. And then also we have uh, the 33 riches of divine grace that I mentioned was so encouraging to me early in my life from Lewis Berry Chafer. And you can get both of those one of two ways. You can go to brucehess.com. And if you haven't been to my website, I would encourage you to go. We're trying to populate it with my messages. And you can stream them. You can download them. You can read the transcriptions of them. But you go to brucehess.com under Life Perspectives, and you'll find these two tools will be there. Or you can go to wildwoodchurch.org slash something more, and that should be all run together. There's something more, and you can get a hold of those. But that's one way to deepen our awareness of God's great provision. For some of us, we just need to be refreshed. We just need a fresh perspective on it. Two life steps. The first one is deepen our awareness of, of God's great provision. And then the second one is to be diligent to grow in our spiritual life. It is tragic to be born again and stay a spiritual baby. I did that for eight years of my life. This second life step, be diligent to grow in our spiritual life, 
is what we're actually going to look at next time in this series when we look at verses 5 to 11 of 2 Peter chapter 1. Let's just pray together. Father, we thank you again for the word of God. We thank you that it's real. It's, it transforms our thinking, transforms our behavior, transforms our attitudes. We thank you for the incredible, incredible, total provision that you've given to us, the complete spiritual resources, precious and magnificent promises. May we learn more about them. May they make a difference in how we think and how we choose to live our life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.